This morning's message from the pastor is entitled, Conforming Our Minds on Government to Scripture. And the scripture reference again is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they shall resist, they shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore, ye must need to be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is sharp and it's powerful. Lord, I pray that it would be convicting to our souls today, that it would be illuminating, that your spirit would teach us, Lord, these truths that are so important and they're so urgent right now. But urgency also means that there's temptation. There's temptation to say what we want to be said and, and to, to speak what we want to hear rather than what your word calls us to. I pray that we'd only speak, I'd only speak, and we'd only hear that which is true from your word. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We were reminded last week that the Apostle Paul was a scholar of the first rank when it come, came to his knowledge of the Old Testament. We looked at some examples of old, the Old Testament and God's involvement in establishing governmental authorities there. And consequence, consequently, in verse 1, we saw Romans 13.1, every soul or everyone ought to subject themselves to government authority. If, if God has granted or established their authority, then everyone is bound by duty to subject themselves to it. And we said that there's a hierarchy there. In the language, there's a hierarchy. We submit, we subject, and God has put them as a higher power above us in that role of governance. And the value of this submission was most clear, we ended last week, in seeing our Savior, the Lord, humble himself to a human governor, to human institutions. And so he went to the cross, bearing our sin upon him in obedience to the Father. Knowing the history of how God sets up rulers and pulls down another in the Old Testament is important as it doesn't allow us to paint an untrue or unrealistic or an idealistic picture of human government. When we look back in the Old Testament and we see what happened in the government, even in Israel, which was supposed to at first be a priestly government, one ruled and, and, and overseen by God himself, and then later it becomes a monarchy, but one still under the law of God, and so it ought to have been righteous and we know that it often was the opposite. We know then that governments can be evil. 
and therefore promote evil in the world. I said last week that as much of history as we know, so we know that governments are evil and have the propensity to do evil in the world. Now that can come as a shock to us, that reality, when we read, say, verses 3 through 5 in our text, where Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, when we read that, and we know that there are historically evil governments and evil decisions made by governments, because we know that Paul knows his history and he's not an idealist, forgetting reality and just painting this nice picture for us here, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Paul himself is on the wrong side of many governmental institutions in his life. We just read in 2 Timothy, a letter he probably wrote while in prison at Rome just before he was beheaded. This is his last letter, we believe. And he was ready to go. And he said, my time is at hand. My departure is coming. And I sense it to be so. And he was whipped and he was scourged and he was in prison many times. Everywhere he went, he, the, the saying is, is that he checked out the, the local prison to see where he'd be staying for the night. And, and he knows this. And yet he's writing this to us. So we need to be asking ourselves some important questions. So I have a list of three basic questions this morning to give us uh, an undergirding as we study this text. And many of them will be as we study the text this morning, but we're not going to get into a deep exercise in expositing Romans 13 this morning. We're going to answer some questions, God willing, of the framework, the context, the textual context, and the historical context. So is Paul, first of all, describing governments as they are or as they ought to be in God's ordaining will or God's will? I believe it's clear that he's describing what governments ought to be, what a government ought to be, and and indeed what God has ordained them to be. Now, how can we understand that if God means that governments ought to be this way and they do evil, how can we understand that? Well, well, God has given us precepts to live by as well, hasn't he? And I'm talking about us as individuals and us as a collective, a church. And I'll tell you this, is not one day this week did I live according to God's will perfectly. And I don't think this church has ever perfectly lived according to God's will and the way we carry out his will. And so when we talk about the will of God, we do understand that we make a distinction between how God has prescribed a way of living, describes the way of living, how he ordains it, and how it actually comes to pass within his greater providential and eternal will, sometimes called his decree. But this is describing, I believe, how governments ought to govern. Now, Paul is not an idealist. We can forget about that. He's not saying, here, I'm going to jail, but this is still how the government is. They're just righteous in all their actions. He's not giving us that picture. We can understand that. As we saw last week, history reveals 
that governments sometimes do as much as they seemingly are able to do to oppose that which is good. Now, when we talk about good and evil in this context, we cannot come to it with relativism, secularism in our mind defining those terms. We have to come to Romans 13 and say, when Paul talks about good and evil, it should be on scriptural basis, not relativistic terms. And therefore, I believe that Paul's underlining emphasis in these verses regard what governments ought to do in accordance with the authority that God has bestowed upon them. Paul's teaching reflects God's good purposes for government. And we'll ask another question soon to see why does he do that? And I think it's an important one. But this means that we can't assume that what the government said and does, says and does, is always virtuous. You know, there have been some Christian groups that take Romans 13 and they say, well, if the government says to do it, then by the fact of this chapter, we know it's good. You know, very few Christians, very few Lutherans in Germany resisted Nazism. Very few did. I shouldn't say very few. Not as many as we should expect did. And the ones that did resist it, we have books written about them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer being one of them. You know, we cannot come to a place where we read Romans 13 and we're, con we're convinced that whatever the government does is for our good as the Bible declares it, can we? That would be absolutely foolish. Now, God can work good through all of that, Romans 8.28, but that is not what we must take the apostle to be teaching. Some have come to that point and then therefore validated evil government policies and actions based upon this chapter. And some have undergirded as as governors, as kings, as those in authority, have said of themselves that whatever I impose based on this text is right. I have the kingly authority from God to do what I will, and that's for your good, and therefore submit. And we'll see why that's wrong this morning. But it leads to another question. Who is responsible to heed these truths that we find in Romans 13, 1 through 7? Who's Paul calling to responsibility here? And in a first, first place, and this is really where we'll focus when we go through the text verse by verse, is it's the citizen. It's you and I. It's, it's the citizen in relationship to the government who is responsible to heed this these truths. And because we're going to go into that in more detail later, we're not going to go into it much right now. It says, let every person be subject. Now, it's a mistake, though, to assume that it only has to do with citizens. And that's often only the subject of those who study these verses. I think limiting the text to just what a citizen's responsibility towards the government fails to recognize the implications that the text has. First, the lack of fear of God by government leaders can be wrought if governments don't see that they are under God's authority. In this text, clearly it says. And so secondly, we need to see that governments are responsible because of this text and because of what it teaches 
to act in accordance with it. If Paul is speaking of how governments ought to use their God-given authority, which I believe is undeniable, they are accountable to God if they use it wrongly. Verse 1 says, there is no authority except from God, and that means if I'm a government leader, I am under God's authority as I carry out my office of authority. It's the same thing as a pastor. It's the same thing as a father. By the way, a little side note for fathers today, don't undercut governmental authority and think of your own authority as something unique to yourself. What does it say in verse, verse 1? God is the one who grants authority. If we undercut God's authority or the government's authority in our household, and then we expect our children to listen to us, we are being contradictory. An exhortation to us fathers, especially in a day and age where we don't want to submit. I don't know, a true confession. There's a lot of things in today's governance. And we'll talk about being Americans when we get to verses 5 and 6 more, or 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, sorry, more. But, but we'll talk about what it means to be an American in this context. And it's important. We have more liberties than Paul did as, as a citizen of Rome. And that means something. But let's not undercut authority. But also, let's see where our authority derives from and then who we're responsible to. And the government is responsible to God for the way they carry out their governing, their authority that God has given them. They are not autonomous, according to this text. They derive their responsibility and authority to govern from God. Now recall with me back in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. David is about to die, the great king of Israel. And in his parting words, notice what he says to Solomon, the king. He's about to be king. In his kingly rule, notice what David says to Solomon. When David's time to die drew near, this is verses 1 through 4, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Men, listen to that. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. This is the king. Subject yourself to God, King Solomon, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You see what David is saying? You have a higher authority, Solomon. Obey God. When you govern this people, there is much in the law of Moses concerning how the people were to be judged and, and how they were to be ruled, how they were to be led. This moral responsibility upon King Solomon is shared by every governmental leader because God is the one who grants them their authority. Since Paul is describing how governments ought to lead, 
Verses 3 and 4 then, as we read it, say as much to the government by implication as it does to the citizen. For, listen to this, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That means if they're in contradiction to that, they are not doing what they ought to do. And then we skip down. Then do what is good. Who defines that good? That's important. That's speaking to us. And you will receive his approval, the government's approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He is God's servant. He's under God's authority. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That he has from the Lord to judge, to have the, the, the right. He has the right to bring judgments down on the citizens, for he is a servant of God. Again, that's where he derives that, that right. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, on the wrongdoer. Psalm 82 is very, uh, in, in, it's very insightful when we see the relationship between what Paul is teaching us here in, in chapter 13, how we ought to honor those in government authority, but also where their responsibility and their culpability lie before God. Go to Psalm 82. It's one of the more fascinating psalms. This is one of those places that the Arian goes to and say, look, we're called gods in the Bible. Humans are called gods. And there's a very real and narrow context for this here. We are no gods in the way that God is God, in the way that Christ is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But let's see, verse chapter 82, we're going to read the whole psalm. God has taken his place in the divine council. Listen, in the midst of the gods, lowercase g, Elohim there. It's the same word that, uh, that is rendered God there with a capital G, but the context demands that it's lowercase. He holds judgment. Here's his judgment on the gods, the lowercase g, gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. And here's his counsel, here's his commands to these gods. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And this is not, is this not indeed what Paul said there? Deliver them from the hand of the wicked in Romans chapter 13, 3 through 4. And here's the reality of their, of their judging of their ruling, let's say. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. He's talking about the gods. They walk about in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are shaken. There's chaos in their ruling. And I said, this is God speaking, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, and here's what we learn of these gods. This is their end. Like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. These are rulers, he's speaking about. These are men put in position of leadership in various nations, because he says at the end here, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. All the nations of the earth, here are their leaders, and this is the picture. They're, they're standing before God in the seat of judgment. They're ones God has given honor to, authority to. He calls them God's princes, but they shall die like men because they do not rule justly and righteously as God has appointed them to do so. 
And therefore, we can determine that Romans 13, 1 through 7, because of these things, is not an idealistic view. For one, Paul's saying, this is how government always works out, but actually how it ought to be, and indeed how we as citizens are responsible to see our duties in relationship to government, and therefore, by implication, how governments ought to rule under God. All of these things are borne out in this text. Now there's some questions about context that we need to have. Last week I mentioned some people come to this text and they say, if you go back to chapter 12 and you see that through verse 9 all the way to verse 21, Paul really is concerned with love, love within the body of Christ. And then from verse 14 through 21, love within the the broader culture as Christians live out their faith in it. And then from verses 8 onwards, 8, 9, and 10 in chapter 13, you also have love. And so they say, government is somehow right in the middle of Paul's teaching on love. That's got to be a redaction. Somebody else must have written that, an insertion here. Why is this here? And I told you we're going to come to some answers. Because I think that it's really important that we see some connections here. Because there are connections. The first contextual answer is, if Paul is teaching both how we ought to live in relationship to governments and implying how governments ought to rule, namely not being a terror to good but to evil, bad conduct, etc., then we can assume that what Paul says about us in the world in chapter 12, when you're persecuted... Don't respond by cursing. Bless. When you're reviled, don't revile again. Vengeance is God's, not your own. Don't seek personal vengeance. We can assume that Paul is giving an encouraging word to the saints here that there is something that God has put in place, namely government, to support you in this world. I think that is one of the clear implications of why he puts government in that light. Paul himself, do you remember, as we've already considered it, he appeals to Caesar. He's about to be put to death in Jerusalem because of wicked leaders. And he says, I'm under Caesar's authority. He's the law, not you. I'm a citizen of Rome. I appeal to the law. He does what we should expect we could do in light of Romans 13. By being subjects to those in government, we could call upon them as those who oppress evil, not good, to, to be our cons- on our side, if you would, in our persecutions, in our oppressions, in, in others' revilings, in injustices towards us. I think this is an encouraging word. In Romans 13, 1 through 7. For the Christian who is living out our faith without the possibility to where when our neighbor throws his junk on our side of the fence, we throw our junk and his back on his side and we say eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No, that's the government's purview. That's in their purview. That's their prerogative. And we can go to them and say, hey, you know, I love my neighbor. I'm not trying to pay evil for evil, but there is a law. And as citizens and as fellow uh, believers and as fellow citizens, even with uh, unbelievers, 
This is one of the ways that God has given to this sinful world to bring resolution between disputes. Recently, there was something that happened within a family, and it, it, it became very explosive. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that this was resolved that was that in others within the family came together to help. You see, there was a greater uh, measure of influence that helped resolve the problem. So it, it was not a tit for tat, and it wasn't that this evildoer could just keep on heaping evil upon the one that they were doing it to, because the, the rest of the family came together. This is often how governments and why governments are established in the world, to help resolve judicial matters. And this is what God is saying in Romans 13, he has done. And so be encouraged by that. You know, still as believers in this country, we have tremendous rights. Brother Jimmy gave me a book that Ken Starr wrote. He's a, a you know, great, he's a judge, in fact, now. But it's about our First Amendment in this country and how it is a bulwark against religious oppression. We as citizens can go to our government if we're being persecuted or if we're being uh, restricted in ways that are unlawful, we can go to them and say, uphold the law for our sake. That's good. God has ordained that. That's one of the purposes Paul puts that in here. Second contextual question, as I said last week, Paul is teaching us of our duty to submit to the government, and this corrects any idea that Christians who are not to be conformed to this world can just live in spite of the government or live in spite of the secular world around us. You know, there's a lot of things in Scripture that if they're taken the wrong way might tempt you to say, I got nothing to do with the world in the wrong sense. Think about what Paul said in Romans 12.2. Be not conformed to this world. Now, Scripture also says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that Satan is the God of this world. Again, lowercase g, the God of this world. You want me to obey the government? Indeed, at Jesus' temptation, Satan shows him the glory of the kingdoms of the earth, the world, and he says, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you them all. That implies Satan is the one who rules the world, the nations there. Not sovereignly, but they do what Satan wants to be done. They're evil. They do evil, is what he's saying. Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Contrary to this, we are called the light of the world, aren't we? Matthew 5, 14. Among other things, it's the cares of this world that choke out the seed of faith in the hearts of those who have heard the gospel. Matthew 4, 19. Sorry, Matthew 5, 14 was the light of the world. And according to Jesus, Christians are not of this world even as he is not of this world, John 17, 14. And indeed, we don't trust the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1. And we live with the knowledge that we are already belonging to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, 28. And look for a day that draws near, namely the return of the king, King Jesus. Romans 13, 12. And we know we could go on and on and on, but lest we think that these things imply that we have no responsibility towards a secular world, toward a secular government to submit ourselves to it, Paul is clear here in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, 
that that is not the implication of these texts. We have responsibility in this world, and one of them is to subject ourselves, submit ourselves even to secular institutions like governments because God has given them their authority. We must dispel the notion that Christians having nothing to do must have nothing to do with secular matters. If this were so, fathers, what would happen to our responsibilities in the home? That's a secular institution. The church is a spiritual institution. God ordained the home from the very beginning to be the way the world functions. That's primarily a matter of secular authority God gave from the beginning. And one of the things we have to move out from our thinking is something that last, the last century was really uh, compelling was that there's an absolute division between the secular and the sacred. God is Lord of all. His creation is secular, if you think about it in that term. And he is Lord of it. Everything belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The people and they that dwell therein, everything is God's. But he also sets things apart for sacred purposes, we know. But that doesn't mean the one is separated from God and the other is close to God. They both belong to him. And we know one day at the end of all, everything will come under his authority. And God will be all in all. And a new heavens and new earth and all of that will be established and he will reign in righteousness. And we look forward to that day. But even now, we do not separate ourselves from what is secular. We would have to go out of the world, Paul says, for that to happen. And that's not our calling. In fact, that's the opposite. We've been called to go into the world and make disciples. All the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Our calling in lives of worship, worship are to be proclaiming God's message, the gospel to the world, while we live as disciples in the world. And so under the authority of government. Third, Paul's teaching on our relationship to government institutions continue in the vein of verses 14 through 21 of chapter 12, where we were learning how to live out our faith among a sinful world. Remember in chapters, chapter 12, verse 3 and, uh, verses 3 and 16, that we are taught that in both the relationship to the church and to those in the outside world, we are to live in humility. And now he says in chapter 12, submit yourselves. You see that similar line? Submit yourselves. You know, we have to be very careful that we are not rebellious just for the sake of being Americans. There is a fine line between rebellion and offense to God and what we saw is as the origins in our country. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. This nation was founded upon a revolution. Things get hairy when you talk about that. One of the hardest matters to deal with with this question of how we submit ourselves to government is what happens in a revolution you don't think there were good sincere christians caught up on both sides of that war 
Absolutely there was. One thinking, I want to subject ourselves to the king in England who is our rightful leader, and the other's thinking, that rightful ruler is not subjecting himself to God's authority. He's claiming to be Christian. He's not subjecting himself to Romans 13, and so we're not going to subject ourselves to an unlawful ruler. It gets hairy. I was reading John Knox because he lived through some hard times. Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, she's known of. And I was thinking, okay, now I'm going to get the definitive answer to how to live in a sinful world and under a sinful government. And, and I'll quote you some of the things that he says in a later sermon. But essentially, it's this. Pray for wisdom. <laughs> These are not easy to decipher. Because we live in a sinful world. And, and it really accords with everything we know in this life already. How do you live with sinful parents? Every one of us does, even Christian parents. I say sorry to my children. Probably not as often as I should. Because I sin against them. They sin against me. But as a leader, I sin against them. As you, as a church, I should probably have a line of confessions every week before you. Because I'm not righteous altogether. And things are never as, as smooth as they ought to be because sin still dwells in here. And here's something for us is that should make us longing for the day of our Lord's return. But it doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities now. Humility also connects this chapter with what came before us. In closing, I just want us to remember the historical context of why, where Paul is while he's writing this. This is probably written in 55 AD, maybe 50, all the way up to 58 AD. In the year 49, the emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because they were unruly. And in fact, his, history tells us very clearly, New Testament tells us very clearly that oftentimes the Jews were an unruly people. They were told in their law, don't let somebody else from outside rule over you. But they were also told that if you disobey me, God told them, if you do not do the works the law, of the law that I gave you to do, I will put you under the bondage of rulers that are not your sons and not your, your, your fathers. It was one of the curses prescribed to them. And so that's often what they, their experience was. They were from from 7, 722 AD when Assyria destroyed uh, uh, the northern kingdom, and then you have Babylon taking over in 50-whatever-it-was, 6, something like that, in, in the southern kingdom. From that time on, it's Babylon, it's Persia and the Medes, it's Greece, it's Rome, and now Paul is writing. <laughs> While Claudius just kicked the, the Jews out of Rome in 49 AD, let them back in in 54 AD, but now Nero is emperor. And Nero's reign starts fairly good, fairly clear, but by the time the 60s come, now ruler is murdering his mother, his brother-in-law, and we know the most terrible things that he did was to Christians. Rome burned, whether he was responsible or not, he blamed it on the Christians. And the persecution that happened under that government, one of the things that happened was Paul being beheaded. But John Fox writes this. <clears throat> he said, Nero wielded against Christians 
acts of torture and murder, which were Satan-inspired. And he says, quote, Some Christians were sewn inside skins of wild animals and torn at by fierce dogs. Shirts stiff with wax were put on others, and they were then tied to poles in Nero's garden and set on fire to provide light for his parties. And this cruel persecution did not remain in Rome, but spread throughout the Roman Empire. Listen to this. But it only succeeded in strengthening the spirit of Christianity rather than killing it. And I'm reminded of what our Lord said in Luke 21, 16. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all, including corrupt governments, for my name's sake. I'm adding that, corrupt governments, by my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, and I believe he means of faith, you will gain your lives. So I end like this to remind us that while we don't live in ignorance, when we look at Romans 13, 1 through 7, we don't suppose that everything governments do is righteous, is good. We know that when we live in accordance with the way God has called us to live, even if it comes to that, cruel and oppressive and tyrannical and murderous government, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We have to have the hope of the gospel underneath us in these times. Too often, and I'm with you, we're being tempted as we see evil coming, as we see it waxing worse and worse, we get discouraged. And discouragement often leads to temptation to not abide within the parameters of God's word and to seek out secular means of answering the evil. But the answer for evil has been already yes and amen in Christ for us. And so we don't lose heart and we don't suffer even if it comes to that in this, in this culture. We don't suffer like those without hope. And we'll remain humble, steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord because Christ has risen. And ultimately, his kingdom will reign forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to these texts, Lord, in humility, just laying the foundation here, two sermons in a row, because these are so important for us to understand. So we remember the context of authority and remember the context of duty and remember the context of hope. Help us to know your word. Help us submit to you in all things, not to be bound by just a spirit of rebelliousness, but to know when to appeal to the government and to be encouraged that you've placed them in that position for the sake of those who do good. There's much more I could say today, Father, but I pray that your spirit would say all that's needed in our hearts and that you'd be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.